Welcome to Public Power Underground, Northwest Public Power's premier weekly infotainment series that covers Northwest public power and public power adjacent news on demand by searching on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, or Substack. Our series began as an awkward forced fun time for the power department 46 weeks ago when we altered our work arrangements at the start of an ongoing pandemic. It has evolved into a forum to chat with public power professionals about niche topics that are entertaining to an extremely small group of utility enthusiasts. And if you're listening to this, that means you. On today's show, we'll get an update on Northwest Power Markets on Aaron Reports and check in on public power and public power adjacent news on Public Power Desktop, where we talk to NRU's Megan Stratman about the BPA rate case and Snohomish County PUD's Garrison Marr dropped in to chat about distributed energy resources, geospatial analytics, and value stacking in integrated resource plans. I'm your host, the voice of the underground, Brian Fawcett. I'm joined by the star of Aaron Reports and co-star of Public Power Underground financial analyst, Aaron Guillory. Good afternoon, Aaron. Good afternoon, Fawcett. I would say it's even been a great afternoon for me so far. It's super cloudy outside, very gray, almost slightly dark. It's been wonderful. Having a great Somewhat day. Somewhat of a celebratory week for you as well, right? Because of my award. <laughs> Are we going to sing happy birthday on the podcast or are we just letting that one go? I don't know. Should we cut this out, Aaron? Oh, I don't. I have no. Yeah. I didn't ask her how old she was. I mean, no (laughs) personal information in here. Yeah, Dwight, it is my birthday. (laughs) Our other other co-star, Public Power Underground, the coding wizard of R and Python, our resident Genesis apprentices, a Reddit user, potentially a GME investor, and current power analyst, Ian, the neural network Bledsoe. Thanks for being here, Ian. Thanks, Brian. Hopefully uh, nobody invested all their life savings in GME like I told them to last week because it's down from 450 last week to closing at 50 today. All right. Lastly, the director of Public Power Underground and manager of the power department, Paul Dockery. Hey, Brian. Hi, everybody. I'm waving uh, because this is audio as well as visual. So I'm waving. (laughs) Feel the wave on the podcast if you're not watching. All right. We're starting this week checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Aaron Reports. This is Aaron Reports. It's built to take, as you know, a few minutes to cover Northwest market indicators for February 4th, 2021. I'm Aaron Guillory and I've got your market update for the week. April, September flows, the Dows are expected to be 88,671,000 acre feet, a 18.45 scale up from last week, putting the anomaly now at 96%. Taking a break from all other dam reporting again this week, we'll move right along to to our check-in on our snow depth in the Canadian Rockies, the Redfish Redfish Creek Snowtel in uh, British Columbia has a snow depth of 192.9 inches, up about 89 inches from last week at 7 in the a.m., with corresponding snow water equivalent of 40.8 inches, up about 5 inches from last the last time reported here, which is uh, like all the children of uh, Lake Wobegon, above average, uh, 120% above average uh, to be precise. Heading to Montana, we'll check in on the Moss Peak snow tail at 6780 feet, elevation with a snow depth of 72 inches, a snow water equivalent of 21.9 inches, and current state of about 91% of normal as of 7 a.m. this morning. 
Uh, Mid-sea power settled at night around 2099 per megawatt hour. Daylight brought 2328, high 27, low 1725. August power mid-sea stayed even at 6810 this week compared to 6915, the last time reported on public power underground. Henry Hub future, February futures, uh, that's March futures, opened at 2789 per MMBTU yesterday, and August opened at 2911. Uh, Sumas gas in August closed at about a 23 cent discount to Henry Hub, indicating that mid-sea uh, August power is priced at a 25 5,000 heat rate. And bond markets just today, another California water district previously reported to have issued 281,660,000 in bonds, issued another borrowing at a total of 188,890,000. A 5% 13-year borrowing with average yields of 84 bips, a 5% term bond, bond with yields of 139 bips due in 2046, and a second 5% term bond at 147 bips due in 2051. The CPC maintained a reported uh, ONI newly issued of negative 1.2 for November, December, January, with most recent SST departures at a dropped negative 0.7 for Nino 3.4 index, indicating a 94% chance. La Nina will continue through the duration of winter 2021 with a potential transition to Enzo neutral uh, during the spring of 2021. Spending a beat at Bonneville's balancing authority, peak load this past week hit 8,200 on February 4th at 8.25 in the AM, down from 8,700 last week's peak. Running parallel, Hydrogen was about 11,500, a near one grand drop while corresponding conventional thermal units also turned out lower than last week, uh, reported at 638 from 1100 for the same interval. Windgen rose to the occasion and grew again this time for one, from 122 to 1750 megs and nuclear again held steady at about 1265, even with last week's coincident peak for the same hour. This week in NOA forecasts, Temp in the region has a 33 to 70% chance of being below normal, while precipitation in the region has a 33 to 40% chance of being above below normal as well, with some areas right in the normal range in the six to 10 day outlook, and a slight shift to anticipated to a 33 to 50% chance of being above normal in the most recent one month outlook for NOAA. And that's what we've got for this update. Back to you, Brian. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> Thanks for the yeah, the Lake Wobegon. Uh, you kind of, you kind of stumbled on Lake Wobegon. Can you cut that out and I'll redo it next week? I could do it better. We'll do it again next week and we'll see if you do it better. I'm not going to cut out. This is all. Oh, dang it. It's going to be fine. What I also Man. would like to see next week is a um, Doctor Evil inspired one million or billion at some point in. <laughs> I heard millions and billions, and I just want a little accentuation. Okay, for the bond markets, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> One million dollars. Okay, noted. So I'm getting a little worried about snow. Um, I don't know if I should be worried about snow or not, but I'm getting a little worried about snow in the, the Montana Rockies. Do you call them the Montana Rockies, the U.S. Rockies? I was going to ask about say this. There's a way to say this that's less awkward. I'm pretty sure half of it's in Idaho too, right? Right. Right. I mean, the ones we're looking at are in Montana. Are over in Montana. But yeah, Idaho as well. These are all, the, all these Idaho snow tells in the Montanas are all below average. Unlike the children. That's kind of, of what Obi-Gan. we discussed last week a little. Yeah, you, is we, it, is we it, did see. Um, far did, enough along to... Well, this is the part of the, the year where I, I do think we should start bidding worried. All right. Next up is our weekly walk through Northwest Public Power and Public Power Adjacent News in a segment we like to call Public Power Desktop. Paul, I think you're up first. 
Yeah, the first news of this week is something I actually got a note about in the middle of last week's uh, recording, but I was too slow to process. It is that Seattle City's Lights' Robin Cross has retired as of January 29, 2021. Uh, she was a friend, and I was pushing for her to be a friend of the underground, um, but uh, she responded, and that's how I ended up knowing. I do think she went out fairly quietly, so there are probably a lot of people, or I suspect there are a lot of my friends similarly that were acquaintances of hers um that also that weren't no didn't know don't know so congratulations to robin she will be missed she was a very inquisitive voice in workshops um and i'll definitely miss how nice she was to me which is i think a trend in all of my interactions and references to people on public power underground that uh i value when people are nice to me and i don't know if that's a personality flaw it certainly could be um but maybe i'll cut this out in post and we can move on to the next one I was just I assumed have... that oh, the natured ribbing was a sign that people actually like you and people who don't like you are always nice to you. That's middle school boys that have crush on girls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean it's certainly possible that all of these people that I think are nice to me and you know I appreciate are just really don't like me. It's certainly possible. I'm not uh I'm not ruling that out. Did but you I like it when people are nice to me, just to be clear. Did she use the subject line when she responded? Did it say new phone who this? No, it didn't. <laughs> no, it said new new phone who this. <laughs> oh, either way. <laughs> okay, moving on. Clearing ups, Casey Mahaffey and Steve Ernst report that Idaho Representative Mike Simpson's office has been briefing public power officials on a plan to breach the four lower Snake River dams. News Data issued a news bulletin Tuesday night about the scoop, and more on the story is expected in the February 5th issue of Clearing Up. Northwest River Partners has also issued a press release regarding the proposal, which is available on their website. Uh, the news release is on Northwest River Partners about us under media. It took me a little bit to find it, uh, but the, the statement's there. Homish PUD is 60% complete with their IRP and their director of power supply, who also happens to be a friend of the underground, Garrison Marr, agreed to drop in to talk distributed resource planning in an IRP, where he nonchalantly uses terms like geospatial analysis, co-optimization, and value stacking in ways that are authentic and unforced. Garrison is the real deal. Hi, Garrison. Welcome to Public Power Underground. Hey, thanks for having me, Paul. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you know, these all of these things are just a way for me to have conversations with you and with people like you. It's just a grand, grand excuse. Well, I will be honest, having uh, literally not left my house for two days, I appreciate the uh, human interaction. Yeah, so. I'm here for it. Here for it. Uh, let's uh, <laughs> and and human interaction about public power and public power adjacent topics. <laughs> so yeah, I there we go. To, I wanted to talk today. Uh, it's the Homish PUD. It's got a distributed energy resources initiative, and I wondered how you guys are thinking about DERs and what you're doing to help customers um, it, integrate them and think through the value proposition of small generation um, within your service territory. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Paul. And I'm, I'm really excited to share what we've been working on because we've been at it now for a year or two, really building upon uh, a lot of the work that we had done previously and some of our IRPs and trying to always continuously improve those. 
And I think that where we're at right now is really exciting. Uh, we have pilots on the ground that we're getting uh, some results from. We're really engaging with our customers to see what their interests are. We've got AMI rolling out in a couple of years that is really going to give us the opportunity to bring things to scale. And you know, as we think about all the policies, um, you know, in our state and Washington state uh, going on around us, um, resource adequacy efforts, um, renewable integration opportunities. You know, we really want to make sure that instead of being reactive and kind of um, maybe having some prescribed plans of action for us, that we're really in the field, in the trenches, understanding what the economics are for us, for our customers, what folks like, what they hate, um, and coming up with a solution that's great from a resource perspective, yeah. uh, but also really bringing in the distribution planning perspective too. Oh, so yeah, you've done these IRPs where you've not only looked at your resource plan, but also the impact on your distribution system. And has this distributed energy resources like tied together with that work in your IRPs? It, it is, um, but in this next IRP cycle, which we're uh, I like to say 60% through, uh, nice. which is a very precise number for a, a real squirrely measure. Yeah, uh, more than halfway. More than halfway. That's what feels good about it. Yeah. Uh, but um, what we're going to be doing this time around that's different than what we've done before is, you know, in our IRP, we're really solving for our system level resource portfolio needs. Okay. But uh, as we solve for that, uh, we are then going to take a next step, generate metadata on that supply and do a geospatial analysis for, okay, uh, we have this cost-effective conservation. Uh, we're going to be exploring rate constructs as a resource for our portfolio and how that helps us. Demand response programs, uh, behind the meter solar, electric vehicle load, incremental electrification. That's great from a system level perspective. It helps us know what we need to do and when, but where does it live? Yeah. And to the extent that some of uh, these resources are reducing capacity uh, constraints on our distribution system, does that defer the need for critical infrastructure like uh, substations or uh, you know, some line redundancy that we might need to serve different areas of our uh, service territory. And that, uh, one, helps our distribution planners and kind of see whether we can alter some of these small area forecasts based on some of these investments we plan to make. But two, helps us take a next step and see if there are opportunities to co-optimize investments from a distribution planning and resource planning perspective so that we can proactively uh, pursue some increments of maybe uneconomic cost uh, conservation or demand response uh, that we could go after because on a holistic level, it makes sense for the company. Yeah, that's really cool. Like talk about like my key words, geospatial analysis. I love it. <laughs> Sefi, friend of the underground, is going to love it too. Um, it's a really, it, it takes this whole analysis of an IRP a step deeper um, to do more of the holistic distribution planning. It sounds like awesome work. It sounds like data intensive work. 
You're not wrong. Um, and I've got one more uh, catchy one for you, which yeah. is, you know, to me, I, I think it helps us better value stack Ooh, uh, value potential stack. investments. Right. Uh, and I'm not talking about cheeseburgers or, um, you know, my favorite value stacks, maybe, but uh, you're really thinking about there's this primary uh, resource portfolio value that's really what we're solving for in IRPs. And even though we incorporate a generic transmission and distribution system deferral credit right. into that analysis, there are specific and different. Uh, small area T&D deferral values. And can we build those on top of each other uh, to get a better sense of where that holistic value might be? That's, you know, kind of a, a neat optimization problem that we can do with yeah. some of this analysis. And then is our distribution planners consider traditional investments uh, to meet some of the distribution system needs, whether that's to, you know, uh, create redundancies in the system or uh, reduce capacity constraints, uh, we can also look at the untapped potential in some of these same resource types across the service territory and see if there is a co-optimized answer from the distribution side. So wow. it really gives us the opportunity to have uh, a kind of sequential system that really talks back and forth between resource planning and distribution planning. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, a lot of work, a lot of analysis. And um, you've said you've got the pilot program going. So is this a pilot program where you're working with customers on uh, like uh, behind the meter resources or distributed generation? And are they like commercial customers, residential? Where, where's the pilot program targeting? Yeah, so we've really got a mix uh, of customer types, residential, commercial, and industrial. And really what we're looking at right now is less the, um, the generation side and more uh, the signal and response okay. pieces uh, to rate constructs and demand response. And there's a okay. little bit of a gray area there on, you know, how some of these things might get structured, right? So like a a critical peak pricing rate structure with some, you know, calls uh, that would set up those critical peak periods, even though they're predefined when they could occur. You know, that sometimes feels a little bit like a demand response program that's doing similar things. Uh, but yeah. what we're really after there is, you know, having not had these resources on the ground in our surface territory. When we make that call, how close is it to our expectations of customers' actual responses? And how will that improve our planning in the future to say, you know, regional metrics say that this is what you could get from a program. But in our experience, it's, you know, 20% better or 20% worse. And uh, what does that tell us about our customers' interests, um, what these programs can do for us? And how we can, you know, kind of co-optimize things within our portfolio. Yeah, it sounds like a really cool way. I, I'm really intrigued by like rate design and how you can structure rate designs to provide price signals. So you willing to come back and talk some more deeper about uh, what you found in your pilot program at some point? Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're really launching it in 2021. So we don't necessarily have that data yet. 
And we'll get that throughout the course of the year. You know, one of the things that's always interesting about, you know, load shifting and, um, you know, performance in these types of programs is how you normalize things. Yeah. So weather, you know, jumps out right on any sort of load normalization. Uh, but this is also a really funny time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's some economic or uh, COVID normalization. Uh, that's going to be kind of an interesting thing to think about as well, right? So what yeah. were our expectations of load given all of these things, you know, going on and maybe that big five-year rolling average isn't the fair way to think about um, what our expectations are. So the reconstituting the counterfactual of what our loads would have been had COVID not occurred. Yeah. (laughs) Easier said than done. Exactly. And uh, it's not even that easy to say. Well, thank you, Garrison, for coming (laughs) on. Thanks for being a friend of the underground. Um, you're going to be a special guest correspondent. I'm going to have you back on. I'm really excited that you participated. Yeah. Thanks so much, Paul. I really appreciate you guys. And it's always fun hearing from others around the region, what they're thinking about and, you know, kind of what their, their special projects are. So it's yeah. great. It's great to have friends. <laughs> thanks. <Jason. laughs> All right. Allie Mace, the director of grid modernization, kicked off BPA's Western EIM implementation workshop at 9.03 with an overview of the process that leads to the March to the March 2nd, 2022 proposed EIM go live date. The workshop hosted roughly 170 participants. At the peak, four of the participants had their webcams on. Oh. One of them was a majestic landscape photo of what Paul believed to be the Puget Sound, uh, which was uh, the entirety of the time. BPA is staffing up to support EIM settlements. Staffing and onboarding should be complete in February, and they are expected to be up to speed developing settlement processes in March. If you receive energy inbounds from BPA today, be ready to get an EIM settlements bill through the EIM settlements and customer billing center systems BPA is setting up. The so-called EIMS bills will A, be issued monthly to BPA customers, B, sent separately from the rest of our BPA bills, I aren't going to be netted, and P will be issued later in the month than other BPA invoices. BPA plans to start testing its settlements process in September of 2021, and customers will be provided generic EIMS bills to review in November of 2021. Be on the lookout for a tech forum meeting as well, an announcement for the March EIM implementation workshop. I definitely wouldn't miss it if you work in a power department at a Northwest utility that gets served energy imbalance by BPA. You were saying EIMS, correct? Not EIMS. Correct. Yeah. So that's the, I'm assuming that's the bill name. Yes. Correct. Correct. At the March workshop, they're going to talk about greenhouse gas accounting in the EIM and whether Bonneville should participate in, uh, in selling energy to California through the EIM. It is an important topic. Um, and I am hoping I can convince some of our friends from PGP to come drop in at Public Power Underground. And I'm gonna forward them this video with this little uh, nugget in here when I send it to them. Uh, So this is me lobbying you, friends at PGP, to come talk about greenhouse gas accounting and get us a refresher before the March workshop. 
All right, the preliminary forecast of the Northwest Power and Conservation Council's 2021 plan doesn't have energy efficiency as the region's least cost acquisition. Instead, natural gas, wind, and solar are expected to cost less by the 2030s. Dan Catchpole reports in the January 29th edition of Clearing Up that rapidly falling, rapidly falling renewable energy prices, sustained low natural gas prices, and massive amounts of new zero emissions generation already are pushing down market prices and spot prices by the 2030s are expected to frequently be negative. The implications of negative pricing on energy efficiency are both fairly obvious and mind-bending. Dislocation between spot pricing and retail energy rates will also drive mind-bending consequences for distribution utilities. Good advice found in the article comes from Jim Yost, who would encourage utilities to reconsider buying high-cost energy efficiency up front. For more, follow the Northwest Power and Conservation Council's 2021 power plan development. It's going to be a wild ride. To be honest, I, I'm still processing it as well. The technical management team convened on February 3rd to talk about Burbit, it's a fish, restoration efforts on the Kootenai, and a system operation request issued by the TMT to the United States Army Corps of Engineers. For more information, visit their website. I'm not going to say that. Uh, the next meeting is scheduled for February 17th, uh, which is uh, a very long meeting, two hours condensed to a single sentence. I think I did a good job there. You did a great job. I really appreciated him. <laughs> All right. The deadline for parties to file direct cases for the BP22 and TC22 rate case was Wednesday, February 3rd. That's the day after Groundhog's Day. And NRU's Megan Stratman took a break from drafting her testimony to chat with Public Power Underground about revenue financing in the initial proposal. Welcome back to Public Power Underground, Megan. Thanks, Paul. I'm so happy to be back. Yeah, you're uh, one of the returning champions for Public Power Underground, um, and that it. means you're eligible for the belt, the the Public Power Underground like championship oh. belt. Excellent. Um, I'm trying I've been to needing a new belt. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out a name for it. So think about it. Feel free to pitch me. Yeah, I um, bet your your viewers and your listeners might have some good names. There's got to be some play on words with hydropower and power. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, there's got to be. There's got to be. <laughs> um, last time you were on, we talked about revenue financing is the theme of BP22. Yes. And I wanted to get you back to talk about like the driver of the constraints because they've talked about these uh, borrowing, the constraints on borrowing authority coming up. And I wanted mm -hmm. to just dig a little bit deeper into what's driving that constraint. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's so important. And, uh, I, I think part of it, you know, not not to not answer your question, but more broadly speaking, what your question is a good one, and that's exactly what we need to be focusing our time on. In my opinion, uh, we need to be having workshops on these issues. They are so interrelated. And interestingly, as I'm getting ready to write my own testimony for the direct case, I, I took a, a walk through history. Um, looking back at when we were developing the financial reserves policy. So everyone's familiar with the financial reserves policy, but here's a fun question. When did we first start talking about a potential financial reserves policy or talking about financial reserves issues? That's a question. What's I don't have guess? an answer. I don't, I, let's go to 2012 because I figure it's a long time ago. 
It was a long time ago. Thankfully, not quite that long, but July of 2014. I mean, that's close to 2012. Yeah, it is close to 2012. So July of 2014, Bonneville held a couple of public workshops on financial reserves. And then when did we actually adopt the financial reserves policy? It's like last rate case, right? Like... (laughs) So it's almost a trick question because we've adopted it and then changed it several times since. So it continues to evolve, but the the formal financial reserves policy was not adopted until the BP 18 record of decision, which was July of 2017. But wait, there's more because then we did a FRP phase in implementation record of decision that was published about a year later in September of 2018. Um, and then we had the financial reserves error issue in 2019. So financial reserves have really been a huge focus for the agency and for the region. Um, and when Bonneville first started this conversation, and a lot of workshops, yeah, a lot of workshops, yeah, we we literally six years of workshops. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I, I bring this up because this is my point. Bonneville's financial health is so important to all the power customers and all the transmission customers in the region and really the economy of the Pacific Northwest. We all know the rich history of why Bonneville was first started to help um, electrify rural America or rural Northwest America and be able to distribute cost-based power at a postage stamp rates across the region and really help strengthen the economy. There's great history. I disclaimer majored in history so I love anything history focused but if you're not familiar with um like World War II and how this all the um stuff that was from hydropower um helped support those war efforts great history there but the point is affordable power is essential in the northwest and you have to have a financially healthy agency but the question is what is a finance financially healthy agency that's been something we've grappled with over the years ever since 2014 the first reason that issue was brought up was what the credit rating agencies were saying yep. and you hear that you hear that still in Bonneville's current conversations on their current proposal to do revenue financing they point to the credit rating agencies and they say the rating agencies are concerned about being nearly 100% debt financed uh, the rating agencies have concern about running out of borrowing authority So still, these issues are at play, and we want to make sure we're understanding comprehensively how all these pieces fit together. Um, And, you know, honestly, we, back in 2018, not that long ago, spent a good uh, at least six months on borrowing authority, because back then, Bonneville was, again, running out of borrowing authority. And so public customers came together and supported regional cooperation debt 2.0, which extended um, that debt and freed up three and a half billion dollars of access to capital. Yeah. Now we are here. We are two years later and we're almost back to where we were. That was supposed to get us through 2030. So I can't answer exactly what the drivers are, but my point is, is we have that conversation. I know there's been a lot of work on, um, looking into the hydro assets and the transmission assets to make sure that we are um, identifying the proper projects to be working on, that those are being executed on time and on budget. Um, I think more work can occur there. Um, I know PPC's been really leading the charge on that issue. Um, but I think 
my answer to your question is it's a good one. And that's what we all need to sit down as a region and really talk about that and talk about how do we make sure Bonneville stays financially healthy and, and what does that mean? And so one of the follow-ups I wanted to have was, was around how to message this to Bonneville. Uh, it's in the rate case there. They've proposed yep. 45 million in transmission and what is it? 90 million, 90 million in power, yep. power. Um, and what do you think will be effective in communicating back to Bonneville that we need that now isn't the time I came up with a few. So let me pitch you. Oh, okay. Let me pitch okay. you. Okay. I, I think I have three. Okay. Is it the emotional argument that our customers are facing some really tough economic pressure because of a pandemic? It's one. Yeah. Is it yeah. that Bonneville has never effectively deployed this much capital in its transmission program and it's way too optimistic that they'll get this much capital deployed? It, or is it that the revenue financing amounts are included in the rates are arbitrary and they don't represent an equitable allocation of costs between the business units? Or you just proposed what I think is actually a very compelling one, which is we need to workshop this a lot more than just a couple months before the rates are proposed. So what do you think? What's effective? Yeah, so I think I'll go with answer E, all of the above. And that's that. always a safe one. <laughs> but I, I do think that's, I think all of those pieces are at play here. And that's why um, to me, this trip down memory lane emphasizes the importance of having these dialogues and these conversations. And by the way, let's just remember how much um, power rates uh, funded for financial reserves. So in BP 18, or yeah, BP 18 was the first year that we had it, it was $20 million per year. BP 20, it was, the cap increased to up to $30 million. And then BP 22 and beyond, the cap is at $40 million per year. So we spent six years basically developing a policy that has an annual impact to power rates of up to $40 million. And yet we've got this revenue financing proposal to include up to $95 million of revenue financing power rates with pretty much no public process. And yes, uh, technically a 7i rate case is a public process, but we have such a rich tradition here with Bonneville and its customers uh, in the public informal workshop process. And we've been able to accomplish a lot over the years where we, for us, especially as NRU members, Bonneville is a partner. Like we, all the preference customers in Bonneville, they coexist. If Bonneville's yeah. healthy, the customers are healthy and vice versa. So we want to work together with Bonneville and others in the region to really try to determine what the issues are here and how to best address them. Yeah. And I like that perspective that we are interested in Bonneville's financial health. We are willing to, you know, a you know, a, a pay for our cost of using their system and having their system provide yep. power to us. We're willing to do that. Um, but it's really helpful if we have good confidence in their use of the rates we're paying. Yeah, and it has to be equitable too. You know, transmission services is the driver of the usage of capital at the rates that we're seeing. It they are a net borrower. Power is a net repayer. Um, why is transmission paying half in revenue financing proposed than power customers? It, it just doesn't make any sense. And so it is. You know, let's set, let's take a step back. Let's figure out metrics. Let's figure out a methodology. What are we trying to achieve? 
It's always good to have a goal that's agreed upon um, and then find a way to be equitable about it. Um, and the financial reserves policy, I'll bring that up again because that is equity is throughout, right? There's power and transmission are treated the same. It's, very, it's a very parallel treatment for both business lines. Um, and it's worrisome to me that a similar treatment hasn't been proposed for revenue financing. Yeah. A hundred percent. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about that. Um, and I will certainly let you get you back to your drafting your testimony. Um, oh, this, is, this is more fun, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm glad that you can come on, have some fun and um, I'd love to have you back. Um, but we'll see what's after the rate case, if you're willing to come back again. I, yeah. I want, I want to keep working towards that championship belt. Okay, we got to figure out a good name for it, though. Okay. Yeah, the right. underground we'll underground championship is good, but we gotta we gotta come up with a better name. Yeah, we will. I mean, you know, there's one thing public power and Bonneville are good at, and that's acronyms and coming up with <laughs> terms. <laughs> plenty of plenty of terms, plenty of acronyms. Yeah, plenty of terms. <laughs> okay, thanks again, Megan. All right, thank you. At midnight, February first, twenty twenty one. SPP's Western Energy and Balance Services market launched. Entities that have announced their intent to join the market include Basin Electric Power Cooperative, Desert Power Electric Cooperative, the Municipal Energy Agency of Nebraska, Tri-State Generation and Transmission Association, the Western Area Power Authority, and the Wyoming Municipal Power Agency. Utility Dive's Robert Walton dove into the topic and notes in the kicker that SPP was hired to be the program developer for the Northwest Power Pools Regional Resource Adequacy Program. For more, you can find Robert on Twitter, at Team Wet Dog. <laughs> the story was also covered in APP's new Public Power Current newsletter. Gold. Yeah, I'm just tracking SPP. They, they seem to be migrating west. They've provided proposals before to uh, the Northwest entities. Um, they're actually coming to next month's members forum, PBC's member forum, uh, to talk about SPP. I'm really curious uh, and interested in their, what are their intentions with us? News Data's joint webinar on electric resource adequacy in California and the West was a smashing success with over 200 participants in each of the two sessions. The speakers were engaging and topics were diverse. Elliot Mainzer mentioned a desire to expand stochastic planning. Randy Hardy had a great quote that averages are the en enemy of reliable capacity planning. And friend of the underground, Susan Ackerman revealed that she quote, cut her teeth as a lawyer negotiating capacity for energy transactions between the Northwest and California. And you know what? She seems to think we can make this work. The webinar was so compelling that it inspired a Zoom duel where I, our local banjo Lely expert, am pitted against a ranting power manager to see who better captures your attention. The last speaker made a passing point about concentration of resource types like solar causing operational issues because it could cause cascading problems with a single event. Which, yes, that's a very good point of view. It's a consensus well, it's among planners and operators. And we're certainly trying to influence policymakers to make to think the same way. But for some reason, it made me think of riding the waves of emotion, which is a think concept I got from the only book I read about the whole brain child. The idea is 
Riding the waves of emotion. And for this rant, we're going to call my idea riding the wave of resource developing. Because in some ways, resource developers are like toddlers. For instance, both are very responsive to their incentive structures. Toddlers want candy and attention, and resource developers want contracts and attention. Those contracts tend to get awarded to the least cost resources. And one thing, the least cost resources is the same resource type tend to be cost effective at the same time when they get alignment between economies of scales, technological advances, policy preferences, access to capital, permitting to make them really profitable to develop. Ultimately, this leads to waves of similar resources all getting built at the same time. That resource type makes some technological advance or some policy directive that makes it really valuable to develop it. So we have natural gas bills, bubbles, solar bubbles, and we have these waves of resource types all getting built at the same time. But just become, because a wave is eventually going to end doesn't mean we shouldn't ride it. The best way to handle the toddler sprain is let it deal with the massive emotion right along with it. Right along with those emotions. Ride that sucker out. Having waves of cost-effective resources getting installed isn't always bad. I don't know who needs to hear this other than me, but having emotions isn't bad. They just require some healthy structure. So we need some healthy market structures to manage it. Like standardized market planning, uh, standardized operation and planning metrics to benchmark, let's say something regional like a resource adequacy program or something like stochastic resource and mode modeling. They can act like an emotionally secure parent here to help us all deal with our waves of emotion. The wave's going to end. Thank goodness waves of emotions end in toddlers. We should be aware that this wave of cheap solar is probably going to end at some point, either because of some massive event causing disruptions or uh, there's some other resource that ends up being more effective. But we should ride it out. And that is riding the wave of resource development. Congratulations, Ian. You've won the duel. Uh, great song choice. Okay, that's all the news we were covering this week. Send us any news, jobs, questions, opinions, or alternate name suggestions for an underground championship belt to Paul on Twitter, at a power manager. Or if you're a friend of the underground, send any of us a note. Public, Public Power Underground is a multimedia empire. Not only can you find us on our YouTube channel, you can also subscribe, rate, comment, and listen to your favorite performative pandemic public power series through your favorite podcast app. And guess what? You can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter to be notified directly in your inbox when new episodes are published by signing up on Substack at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. We'd like to thank Brian Johnson from Franklin PUD for taking on the role of honorary promoter of Public Power Underground. Thank you for forwarding the emails along. If you, like Brian, forwarded the show along to, pu to Public Power Peers last week, trust us, they loved it forwarded along again, you wouldn't want them missing out on this great content. If you'd like to be removed as a friend of the underground, you can send Paul an email with the subject line, nope. That's the subject line, nope. Paul Dockery to be removed from the distribution list for friends of the underground. Thanks for tuning in. Public Power Underground is presented by Plug Pass. Plug Pass is an electric vehicle charging program designed by and for commuters. It's a public charging program predicated on utility ownership. Classic and IPUD owns its electric charge vehicle charging infrastructure, including regular old point of sale transaction public charging equipment like DC fast chargers and level two chargers. Our board sets the prices charged to motorists at the chargers in accordance with a publicly adopted rate schedule. 
We believe this is the best way to provide value to our customers and preserve local control of electric vehicle retail sales or electric retail sales. Maybe I'll edit that out. Maybe I'll leave it in. At this point, nobody's listening. Anyway, to learn more, reach out. We're always happy to chat about our electric vehicle public charging philosophy. Plug Pass, it's open source. Plug Pass, it's just an outlet. Public Power Underground is a pandemic diversion for entertainment purposes. It's written, edited, and produced by the Power Department. The views expressed here are our own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD, nor of any person or organization affiliated or doing business with Klatskin IPUD, nor the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Neither Klatskin IPUD nor those appearing on Public Power Underground generate ad revenue from the episodes. What do we get out of it? Great question. I guess I really like the community of Public Power. And community needs connective tissue of shared experience to thrive. During this pandemic, a lot of those connective tissues are inaccessible. So we're doing this. And you made it this far in the episodes. You must share some of those same beliefs. That's really fucking cool. So don't be shy about liking, commenting, five-star rating, or glowing reviews on our podcast channel. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground. It's work to watch.